0: Again, thank you for listening, and we're excited to see what is next in your life. We are an ever-evolving community of visionaries, dreamers, and doers who have been called by God to live the lives we are created to live, commanded by God to love beyond the limits of our prejudices, and commissioned by God to serve, called to live, commanded to love, and commissioned to serve. You know how we like to say it, family. We live, we love, we serve. Amen. Amen. I want to thank all of you because you all were so gracious and and gave amazing feedback for our Resilient Series in the month of January. And that series is done, but I I, I want to share something. Those of you uh, this past week who listened to Midweek Motivation got got an, an early glimpse of today's sermon. I want to visit the passage I actually talked about. Uh, during midweek motivation, found in the gospel according to John. So in John 5, verses 1 through 9, we find these words. John 5, 1 through 9, and I'm reading from the Message Bible. And here's how it reads in the Message Bible. Soon, another feast came around, and Jesus was back in Jerusalem. Near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there was a pool in Hebrew called Bethesda, with five alcoves, hundreds of sick people, blind, crippled, paralyzed, were in these alcoves. One man had been an invalid there for 38 years. When Jesus saw him stretched out by the pool and knew how long he had been there, he said, do you want to get well? The sick man said, sir, when the water is stirred, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. By the time I get there, somebody else is already in. Jesus said, get up, take your bedroll, and start walking. The man was healed on the spot. He picked up his bedroll and walked off. That day happened to be the Sabbath. Come on, family, let's pray. God, we thank you and we honor you today, O God, and as always, O Lord, we we are grateful for grace, grateful for grace, O oh God. Just this past week, O oh God, every day you reminded us of how precious your grace is. We, we woke up every morning, those who are here and now, and we're able to acknowledge that the, the breath in our lungs, that breath is a gift. The life that we have, that life is a gift. God, thank you for in so many ways you continually give life. Not only do you give life, O God, but then the carpenter reminded us that he came that we might have the abundance of life to live in the fullness of life. Now, O God, let your word do its own work. Help me, O God, to decrease so that you might increase that your people may receive your word. Lord, we love you. We say thank you. Amen. I want to read that again. John 5, 1 through 9 in the Message Bible. It reads like this. Soon, another feast came around and Jesus was back in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. There was a pool in Hebrew called Bethesda with five alcoves. Hundreds of sick people, blind, crippled, paralyzed were in these alcoves. One man had been an invalid there for 38 years. When Jesus saw him stretched out by the pool and knew how long he had been there, he said, Do you want to get well? The sick man said, sir, when the water is stirred, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. By the time I get there, somebody else is already in. Jesus said, get up, take your bedroll, start walking. The man was healed on the spot. He picked up his bedroll and walked off. The day happened to be the Sabbath. This morning, beloved, I want to just share from this thought, just share a few thoughts this morning from this idea, this theme, notes from a poolside encounter, notes from a poolside encounter. Jesus was disruptive to say the least. He was disruptive for so many reasons and to so many people. One particular group who had a difficult time with Jesus' disruptive ways were the religious leaders, the members of the Sanhedrin council, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes. They had a problem with Jesus' disruptive ways for many reasons because Jesus' words and actions exposed in many ways their inaction. Jesus' power and gift was so profound that it again exposed exposed in some ways the powerlessness of many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Yes, Jesus was disruptive, but there was something for the religious leaders that was extremely problematic. What was extremely problematic was Jesus was not only disruptive, but he was a disruptor of their traditions, their traditions that they had held on to so dearly that They believed that they were held accountable and responsible for executing the traditions that had, in their opinion, held the people for so long. The traditions and the rituals that had been practiced for a myriad of generations. And here comes this carpenter, this poor Jewish carpenter, who is extremely disruptive with regard to the traditions, but also seemingly disregards their traditions. I have to even say that it can be a dangerous thing when you have people who are religious, but their religiosity is shaped by their intoxication with traditions. You see, at some point, traditions can become toxic. Rituals can become empty especially when our rituals become habit that are devoid of power, and when our traditions are so deeply ingrained in the collective psyche of those who may be religious that the traditions leave no, move, uh, no, well, no space for the move of God. It's a dangerous thing when your, your intoxication with the tradition is so great that you miss moments of God's move, And you also, in some ways, don't leave space for the spirit to have its way. You see, tradition is not only that which can make you move or rather miss the move of God, but traditions can also blind you to the move of God. I can't imagine on that particular day how the man must have felt when he was now walking again. It had been 38 years that he had been afflicted and lame. And on this particular occasion, after this encounter, as he's walking away, getting used to his new limbs, he encountered some religious people, the religious leaders to be exact. They said, how is it that you're carrying your bedroll on the Sabbath? Sabbath. The Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest where there were rigid rules that guarded against doing any activity on the Sabbath. After all, they thought and believed they were in good standing because the Sabbath, they believed, was ordained by God. It was the day of rest. And in their minds, this man carrying the bedroll was breaking a Sabbath observance. It's amazing, again, how their intoxication with the tradition of keeping Sabbath made them blind to the fact that he was actually carrying what had been carrying him, that he was now healed different than how they had maybe known him. But to them, that didn't matter. He was dishonoring the Sabbath. I love an encounter that religious leaders had with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark on one occasion when they were chastising Jesus for how his disciples and even he were doing activities, getting food, gleaning from the field on the Sabbath day. And Jesus had to remind them, be clear, I understand the tradition, I respect the tradition, but know this, that man was not made for Sabbath. Human beings were not made for Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for human beings. And you have to understand that because when you begin to not honor, but worship the ritual and worship the tradition, you can miss when God shifts and does something new. And so Jesus had reminded them there in the Gospel of Mark that, that, that human beings were not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for human beings. And to go a little deeper, this issue is not so much about Sabbath or what days you honor. The, the issue really, to me, revolves around what rest really is. What constitutes rest? I mean, if you think about it, I know many of us who have a habit of becoming workaholics, we often groan for a day of rest. We groan to not have to move about so much. We're sometimes so consumed with our busyness that we don't even know how to rest. We don't know how to turn it off. I have to admit, I've been guilty a time or two or three or four of that myself, that I didn't always know how to turn it off. I didn't know how to rest. And and in that moment, your body will let you know when it's time to stop, to slow down, because as I was told a long time ago, if you don't stop. Your body will make you stop. That's one kind of rest. That is kind of physical fatigue when you need to be still and pause and recharge and replenish and regroup so that you can face a new day. That's rest. But what happens when rest looks different? You see, what I think when I look at this passage and the religious leader's reaction to the man who had been healed They weren't concerned with rest. Their harassing was an attempt to actually make him restless. Oh, I hope you get that today. Because if you've lived a restless life, rest looks different. When when your life has been shaped by hardship and affliction like this, man, where you once were able to do certain things, but now for 38 years, you have not been able to function the way you were used to, rest looks rather different. Because what is really tormenting you, what is causing the restlessness is that you are no longer who you knew yourself to be. So in that moment when the man stands before them, now healed and whole, they missed the move of God. They weren't concerned about rest because in their efforts to hold on to the tradition, they were actually making him restless. It's an interesting take on this. Maybe they would have preferred if nothing had happened on the Sabbath and instead of him carrying the bed, the bed was still carrying him. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's really what the issue for them was, is that they were more concerned with tradition than breakthroughs. They were, they were more concerned with rituals than seeing people transformed. Maybe that was the issue. It is amazing to me that when you look at this man, the story is filled with so much that reminds us of what rest looks like, not for those who are physically tired but for those who are emotionally, spiritually drained. When was the last time you didn't need sleep, but you needed rest? When was the last time that, that, that the, the days had been piling and the challenges had been increasing and the struggle was intensifying and the pain was deepening and the wounds were expanding and you needed rest? Oh, I'm not talking about sleep. I'm talking about the kind of rest when your soul can be at ease. On one level, you have people who don't want to walk in this man's newfound rest. And then you have, on the other hand, the carpenter who was completely amazed by that same man's restlessness. You see, when Jesus encountered him, he came to Bethesda. To the pool there. Oh, I wish we could even grasp a glimpse of what that day must have looked like. It was a feast time. It was a great celebration, and many people were in Jerusalem to celebrate another feast year and feast time. And there in the midst of celebration and honoring God, there were hundreds of people who were afflicted were gathered by the pool of Bethesda. It was a cruel place if you could see it. I know you hear me say a cruel place and you think immediately that it was a place that many people believe that when the waters of the pool would begin to stir or begin a little, to be a little troubled, that whoever was the first one in would be healed. That was cruel. Think of hundreds of people showing up for healing knowing that whoever was the first to get in the water would be healed. Can you imagine hundreds of people, it says the lame, the blind, the paralyzed, the crippled, gathered hoping for healing but only knowing that every year only one would be healed. Can you imagine how cruel it must have been to be at a place being broken and bruised and damaged and then only to find out that at this place the healing is competitive? I mean, just think about that. This idea of competitive healing was hovering over the pool. Whoever was not as bad could be healed. What do you mean? Because whoever was first to the water, that means, can you imagine paralyzed people trying to get to the water? the crippled people trying to get to the water, those who were broken and bruised trying to get there, only those who weren't quite as damaged were able to get to the water. It was competitive healing, and it actually reversed the name of Bethesda. You see, Bethesda means house of mercy. But there was nothing merciful about this scene, not where there's competition in healing. They were gathered there waiting the water to start moving and Jesus there for the feast shows up to the pool at Bethesda and some people believe that when he surveys the landscape and he sees these distorted bodies and distorted limbs and and frail people and afflictions abounding that maybe he went to the worst case not the worst physical case I'm not so convinced that this man may have had the worst physical case but maybe he had the worst situation. There's a difference. I shared this week that sometimes when we experience affliction, there's another affliction that accompanies the primary affliction. In this man's case, he had not been walking for 38 years. That was the obvious affliction. The secondary affliction is what happens to you emotionally when you lose a sense of who you are. When you're no longer able to move the way you used to move, be who you used to be, when you lose a sense of yourself and when the affliction becomes so intense you can't even imagine recapturing who you used to be, that's a different kind of affliction. It is one thing to have a condition, but this kind of affliction is different. It it messes with your psyche, it messes with your mind, it messes with your spirit. It begins to make you think differently about yourself. You feel differently, not because of the affliction, but because of the way the affliction makes you feel. Jesus sees this man 38 years 38 years it said he had been in this condition but he kept coming to the pool he kept coming to the pool knowing that he may not really get there participating in the cruelty of the pool with a glimpse of hope knowing that the possibility of him getting to the pool was slim to none but still participating in this cruel moment. Jesus comes there, and he cuts right to the chase when he sees the man. And I love the King James here, the poetry of the King James. Here it is. Wilt thou be made whole? That language says something different than, do you want to get well? I like the King James there, even though it's kind of archaic and different. That idea of wholeness is different than healing. Do you want to be healed is different, but do you want to be whole is something altogether different. Because again, there's a difference between healing and wholeness. I know a whole lot of people who've been healed but battle to be whole. Oh gosh, there's some people who go to the hospital when they are sick or afflicted, something is wrong, and they can get healed but still be damaged from that which damaged them. Not whole. Jesus' question presses more than just the physicality of the man's situations do you want to be made whole? His response reinforced possibly the assumption of Jesus that there was something deeper than the affliction. Because when Jesus said, do you want to be made whole, mind you, he's there to be healed. He's there hoping he can get to the pool. He's there hoping that he can be made new. And when Jesus poses the question, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be better? Do you want to be made whole? He can't even answer. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being so consumed with your narrative of inability, you can't hear the possibility of being restored. How do you know that's the case? Because when Jesus poses a question, what does he do? He said, I have nobody to get me to the water. Every time the water starts to move, I try to get there, but somebody always gets there before me. Can you imagine how many times he had rehearsed that in his head prior to this Jesus encounter? Can you imagine how many times he lamented about not being, get, or being able to get to the pool? I mean, because you know when you've been deeply wounded, and deeply wounded to the point where you become synonymous with your woundedness, you forget about the possibility of being restored because you learn to love the narrative of your damaged state. You fall in love with the narrative, and the narrative consumes you. It is the thing that everybody knows you for because you lead with that. You lead with that which is afflicting you. You lead with that which is wounding you. You lead with that which is damaging you. And pretty soon, you don't know any other language but your problem. And everybody who knows you knows the affliction because every time they meet you, you got to tell them your story. You got to make sure they know your story. The question is not whether they know your story. The issue is do you know your possibility? For in that moment, Jesus posed the question, Getting up ain't even on the man's mind. When he tells a story, Jesus does not wait for a response that he wants. Oh, my God. What what would have happened to you in those moments if the possibility of healing had to wait for you to catch up with it? Like, no, okay, let me say that differently. What What would happen to many of us if... The possibility of healing was predicated on our capacity to believe in it. Okay, that didn't get it. (laughs) What would happen to us if our attitude towards our condition determined the possibility of our breakthrough? Think about that for a second. Think about how many times that in your mind you worked against you because you thought the thing you were dealing with was who you were. You couldn't even see a way out or a way through or a way around or a way up. You could just see where you were. Well, Jesus says to the man very simply, get up, take up your bed, and walk. That simple. No magic mud, no laying on of hands, no special oil no prayer, no fasting, a directive. Isn't that something? Isn't it amazing how many of us would have come to that man and created all kind of new rituals hoping that they could work? We would have said a whole lot of words and we would have done a whole lot of things. We would have engaged in a whole lot of action believing that somehow our actions would have determined the man's outcome. Oh, you got to be honest now. We'd have encountered that moment. We'd have have had a whole new litany of things to say. We would have created a whole new way of speaking to the man, and then we would have said to the man, if it didn't work, something is wrong with you. We'd have said all the right words. We'd have prayed. We'd have fasted. We'd have formed a circle around the man, and we would have touched and agreed, and then if it didn't happen, we'd have said that he was not in agreement with our agreement, or we looked at him and his condition and said he's not in alignment with our spirit. I mean, we would have said all kinds of things, that we would have criticized a man, not because of our inability, but we would reduce reduced it to that man's faith. Lessness. Isn't it deep that Jesus doesn't even get into all that? Isn't it amazing when you look at Jesus' engagement with this man? Again, let me just repeat, there's no oil, there's no fasting, there's no prayer here, there's no sacred conversation, there's no tarrying all night. None of that is going on. He doesn't even wait for the man to get faith enough to get up. Oh, you got to get that part. He doesn't wait to say, you have to believe in order for this to happen. He didn't even wait for that. Why? Because this moment was about him doing. Oh, you might've missed that. Jesus didn't wait to see where his measure of faith was. He simply said, get up, take up the mat, and walk. (laughs) And it said, the man got up, took up his mat, and he walked. In that moment, the man experienced rest. To walk again for a person who couldn't walk is rest. To see again for a person who was blind is rest. To feel new again, when your whole life you've been told that you were worthless, is rest. To feel valuable again, when you felt that there was nothing very special about you, is rest. Rest is not a day of the week. In this case, rest is a transformation of your circumstance. A complete reversal of your order of life. Because until that moment, that man's life, based on his own words, was shaped by his affliction, his pain. There was no peace. But by simply speaking in to the man and telling him to do what he thought could not be done, and he did not stop to see if he could do it, he just did it. (laughs) He didn't stop to see if he could do it, he just did it. He didn't second guess himself, he didn't talk himself out of it, he didn't say, is this really possible? Can I really get up? Is this man crazy? He didn't even know who Jesus was. If you read the story down, he didn't know who it was who was speaking to him. So you can't say that was necessarily because he knew the power of God was moving, or this was Jesus the Messiah, or this was the Christ, this was the chosen one, this was some prophet. It says later on in the story that he didn't even know who it was who had healed him. Hold on. You mean to tell me that this man did not know about the power that was at work in Jesus, that Jesus was just another person in his mind, and just some other person simply spoke to him? Get up up, take up your bed, and walk. Wait, you might have missed that. This man did not even know who Jesus was. He did not know this was Jesus who was talking to him. All he knew is that some man who asked him if he wanted to be made whole, and he told him his story, that man said, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And he did so. Man, I hope you can hear this today. This man did not know that this was Jesus. He did not know the power was there. He did not even know to have faith in this man. He did not know this was some manifestation of divine power in front of him. He did not know this was the hope for Messiah. He. Did not know this was the Christ. All he saw was another human being looking him in the face and challenging him to do something he did not think he could do, and he surprised himself and got up and did it. He got up, took up his bed, and started walking. That is the power of the story. Not that Jesus spoke to him, but that he didn't know it was Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. I had that conversation in the office with Deacon Randy before we came out here, and he talked about that. And I said, yeah, that is the power of the story. But there's something else I'm going to come to in a second. But that's the power. This man had no idea. Because we would want to say, well, he had faith. Faith in what? He didn't know who it was. So if he didn't know who it was, what did he come across? Possibly faith in himself. Maybe. Maybe he needed someone to remind him what he used to do. Get up, man. It's there. Maybe you've been sitting so long you forgot what those legs could do. Get up. And don't just get up and walk away. No, no. Get up and take up your mat, because that mat for 38 years has been your identifying marker. So that when people see you, I don't want them to be confused and think that you're somebody different than who they used to seeing with that mat. Let them see the mat and be confused and then know that you and the mat are no longer synonymous. Take it with you. Let the thing that identifies you now be the thing that identifies you differently. So now you have an embedded testimony you carry around with you. So when people say, why are you carrying this mat? You can walk. He said, but it wasn't always this way. (laughs) There was a time when I couldn't do this. And this is a reminder to me of what I could do. Walk. And he did it. And then something, and I want to leave you with this, and then that's when he has the encounter that I started with, that when he is now whole, up, walking, healed, here come the traditionalists. It's Sabbath. You're not supposed to do that. They missed the whole move. They missed the whole moment, and they missed the breakthrough. That man had a poolside encounter. Think about that. Think about that. He came to the pool and found out he didn't even need the pool. <laughs> he, he had been there for 38 years only to find out that restoration had nothing to do with the water there. So the, poolside and, the pool was a backdrop to his breakthrough, but it wasn't the source of his restoration. Well, that's one thing. And then here's what I want to leave you with. For those of us who are committed to walk in the path of the carpenter, look at what the carpenter does after the poolside encounter. It said that he simply disappeared into the crowd. He didn't sit around and wait to get credit. He didn't want to pat on the back. He didn't wait for the accolade. He didn't look for the hand clap. He didn't see who recognized him or who was going to give the man credit. He didn't say, oh, by the way, you know who I am? It said he disappeared in the crowd. And here's what I want to leave us with a thought, and, and, and maybe this is what stuck out to me, because when I was reading this story, this one line just jumped out to me, and he disappeared in the crowd. I wonder what crowd did he disappear into? Because when he got there, it was a crowd of afflicted people. Can you imagine if Jesus actually blended in with the broken? If he simply found a place to be among the broken. Maybe that's the model and the work. To disappear among those you seek to empower. To lose your identity with those who others are afraid to be seen with. To be in the crowd of those who have been ostracized and castigated and marginalized and ridiculed. Maybe that's part of the call to find a place among those who have no place. Maybe your space is to be at rest with those who are restless. Maybe that's the work we're called to do in this season. Maybe for those of us who want to be disciples, that's the real lesson. You can't follow in the footsteps of the carpenter running from those who've been battered by life the most and bruised and broken. He went to the pool. The pool did not find him. He showed up where the afflicted were. He disappeared into the crowd of the broken. Because maybe that's where he was at rest best. They that behold need not a physician, he once said. But they that are Sick, and hurt and wounded and damaged. Maybe that's our call today. Maybe there are a lot of people like the man of Bethesda who are waiting in the wrong place and simply waiting for you to show up and not perform for them. Speak to them speak in such a way that you can remind people of their strength, of their power, and of their gifts. Maybe that's the work we're called to do. If we're serious about our journey as disciples, not stuck on traditions that have lost meaning and power but attuned to the next new move of God. Not consumed with rituals that have lost meaning, but open to the dynamism of God's movements. Maybe That's what we're supposed to do. And in doing that, in doing that, we become disruptive, Disciples. Come on, beloved. Let's lean into God. God, thank you today for reminding us of the power of divine disruption. Thank you, O God. For reminding us, oh God, that part of our work is to show up in places that other people run from. And maybe we find our way among those who are seeking to make a way. Maybe we just speak life, oh God, and thank you for reminding us of that today. It's not complicated, but yet we make it so complicated when we shroud our simple conversation that gives life with performance, rituals, and traditions. God, help us to be disruptive, non-traditionalists like the carpenter. And truly, God, that is more than enough. And then, oh God, for those of us who are like the man, help us to think about our response to the possibility of wholeness and healing. Help us to think about how we might respond in the face of breakthrough. How, oh God, we might respond when our wholeness is on the agenda. Thank you for these reminders today. And we will continue to give you honor and glory because you are worthy. You are worthy, oh God. You are worthy. God, this is our prayer in your name we pray. And we say, amen.